0: I came across this quote uh, today. Um, sort of relates to what we're doing here. It says, Dad, it's from Al-Anza, Dad taught me everything I know. Unfortunately, he didn't teach me everything he knows. I thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Which reminds me of the quote from the Buddha who when asked about does he teach everything he knows? He picks up a handful of leaves in the forest, and he says, what do you think's greater, the, the bundle of leaves in my hand, or the leaves in the forest? And the monks go, duh, the leaves in the forest. And he says, like so, what, my, what I know and understand is like the, as vast as the leaves of the forest, but what I teach you to know to, uh, for liberation is what I, what I have in the palm of my hand. And um, I'm sure that relates somehow metaphorically to what we're doing here. <laughs> you can figure that one out for yourself. But um, So I am gonna talk about um, a key Buddhist teaching called the three characteristics, the three marks of existence. How many people are familiar with this teaching, the three characteristics, the three marks of existence? Okay, very few. That's rather surprising. Um, so, but I'm going to talk about it in the context of teaching. So the three characteristics are qualities or aspects of experience that affect every experience or moment that we have. And so we want to understand these qualities, these aspects, because when we don't, we tend to get caught in reactivity and suffering. So a question came up today about what mindfulness is. And there's a lot of confusion about that term and what mindfulness is. And if I asked you what mindfulness is after a six days of mindfulness practice, I would hear many things, some of which aren't actually mindfulness. Right? But I'm not going to put you on the spot. Mm. Or I could <laughs> put the pressure on. But beca- and the, what, why, why I say that is because people confuse m- what mindfulness is with its application with its function, with its result and other things, with its techniques. So I'm just gonna mention a bit because it relates to the topic I'm talking about tonight. So I loosely translate mindfulness as awareness. When people get into these long, complicated descriptions of what mindfulness is, it's basically awareness, it's basically knowing what's happening. It's very simple, right? And all of the practices and techniques and tools and methodologies and applications, they're ways that we apply and direct that awareness. Right? So, some, you know, the question came something like, you know, you know is, is sensing the body awareness, is sensing the body mindfulness? Well, mindfulness is aware the mindfulness is the awareness that's knowing the sensations of the body. And so body sensing could be an aspect of mindfulness practice. But it's not strictly what I define as mindfulness. Mindfulness is the awareness and the knowing of the sensations. Right? Is that is that making that making that distinction clear? So the function of mindfulness is as important as the quality of awareness itself, the function of mindfulness is it reveals. Mindfulness supports when 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 we're aware, right? What does awareness support? It supports clarity, it supports clearly knowing what's happening. It supports understanding. It supports insight. So the mindfulness is in service of, when we look at mindfulness not as an abstract thing of developing mindfulness as an end in itself, attention as an end in itself. Mindfulness in the context of a path, like the Buddhist path, or you could say the mindfulness path if you hold a broad perspective of what mindfulness practice is. Mindfulness is in service of understanding the human condition. That's why the Buddha taught mindfulness. Understanding the human condition because we want to understand how we create pain and how we can find freedom in the midst of life right now And you've spent a week studying your mind Seeing how we add and create our own distress through our thoughts and our judgments and our reactions as an example Right. Yes. I'm hoping that learning has been happening so the, 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 the awareness is in service of understanding for insight that liberates how we get caught in suffering, how we can find peace. And we don't stop there. That understanding informs our action and response to life. Right? So it's the awareness, there's the, there's the, the, the function of it which, it which it allows for understanding, right? which allows us to make wise choices and decisions and actions in our life like to stop harming ourselves with our self judgments to stop harming another through our unkind words is a very simple example right? or all the many ways we see that we cause pain to ourselves and to others the awareness informs the understanding which forms informs wise action And we do that on on an internal level, we do that on a personal level, we do that on an interpersonal level, we do that on a societal level. We see, we look at climate change, we look at racism in the culture, and we decide to act in a more skillful, conscious way because of the the understanding that's come from our, our awareness, from the mindfulness practice. So it's not a passive practice. The awareness is informing understanding of how we, in, how we make intention and act in the world. Right? So it's a very dynamic and engaged practice. Ultimately to relieve suffering for ourselves and others and the world and the planet. So I just wanted to lay that out because there's a lot of clair- un- un- confusion about what mindfulness is. Right? And there's a difference between what it is and what its function is and what it serves and what it allows. And so then we cultivate all these tools and techniques which support that awareness that help the understanding clarity and wise action. In the context of the Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Buddha taught mindfulness in the context of wise action. We cultivate our mind and heart to inform understanding, intention, informs our ethical decisions, how we work, how we speak, how we are in the world, how we act in the world, our choices. So in the light of that, in terms of our teaching, what I want to talk about tonight, mindfulness informs and reveals these different characteristics in relationship to our teaching. And so I'm gonna go through them one by one. Does anybody know what the three characteristics are? What are they? Impermanence? Impermanence. Not self. It's not no self, it's not self. And I'll explain a little about what that is. I'm not chastising you, but just clarification of language, which at Spirit Rock we're trying to be clear about. And I'll say more about that in a minute. And unsatisfactoriness right dukkha all right so um the the most obvious and pervasive thing if we pay attention to our experience is the is the understanding that everything's changing right this is not rocket science we know this from big picture from looking at our Emotions, sensations, thoughts, feelings—right, everything is changing, cascading like a waterfall, moment by moment by moment. This is true also of our teaching, right? or our facilitating, or whatever you call. It. I'll, I'm going to use the word teaching because that's that's what I do, and that's what I train people to do. Um. So one of the ways the Buddha spoke to um, this quality, this this truth, or the, this facet of our experience of change is in the teaching of what he called the eight worldly winds that our our experience is subject to these eight changing things, four conditions that uh, have their opposite, four variables. And they are pleasure and pain. Anybody notice any pleasure and pain this week? Gain and loss. Praise and blame. Definitely happens in the teaching role and fame and disrepute, which also happens in the teaching role. So they're very relevant in a way. So uh, the pleasure and the pain of teaching. Like everything, teaching is a mixed bag. It's wonderful and it has its challenges. The pleasures of teaching. The joy of sharing what we know, the joy of sharing what we love, the joy of sharing um, a practice that we care about. How great to be able to do that. How great to be able to, to turn people onto a practice that you know is gonna be transformative for them and their lives and their pain. You know, I get the joy of teaching this practice in the wilderness. I have people hiking and kayaking for a week or 10 days and we're opening up to our senses and awareness to the beauty and the profundity of the natural world as a great teacher. I feel I feel I pinch myself every time I lead a, a nature retreat or a backpacking retreat. Um, the the gift of training and mentoring. I I do a lot of teacher trainings and mentoring now, and it's complete delight to mentor someone. Just as it is delight to work with a student and see them grow in their understanding, in their self love, in their capacity to deal with life. Right, it is tremendously joyful. I can't think of anything more satisfying, which is. Why I do this work? I remember taking these teachings into prisons and into juvenile halls and working with um you know youth at risk and um I remember working with a gang member once teaching metta in this class down in san mateo and um and uh There's about fifteen young guys in there, and um, teaching meta and you never quite know how this stuff's going to go down because you know people; it's pretty hardened, and people are very guarded. And I'm teaching meta and and it's one guy then says, "I don't know, that just didn't make sense to me. I don't know what you're talking about this meta stuff." And this young man, this really, really strong, tall, um, heavily built man, who was I later found out was was one of the gang leaders, he said. You know it's just like the way your mother loves you, he said that's meta, you know, and it was just such a beautiful moment like and to have those moments in teaching is just very touching or going to Africa and teaching um going to Senegal and working with um these country directors in West Africa who are doing amazing work on the ground with famine and ebola and and uh whatnot and um and to be able to feel like you can make just a teeny bit of difference in their lives because they're doing such amazing work or if it's supporting activists that I do, it's, it's beautiful. So there's, there's lots of joy and pleasure in the teaching. And then there's the pain of teaching, right? Can be a pain in the ass at times, um, having to schlep to, I don't know where, to Nova Scotia or somewhere to lead a A retreat or a workshop a lot of traveling a lot of busy schedules in my case and juggling calendars and dates and and things and uh, Can be very tiring, you know, it's it takes a lot of energy to teach and if you do a lot you can feel the 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 load of it the the, the burden of it at times there's the pain of self-doubt the pain of the pain of of not sure, not knowing if, if what you're doing is the right thing or the useful thing, or whether someone could do it better, or right? so all the different ways that we can bring our own stuff to the table, right? just as with anything. So the, the the teaching is a mirror, it's a wonderful mirror for our practice. Why it's such one of the reasons I wanted to teach when I, back at before I was teaching was because I knew it'd be great for practice. It's a great motivator for practice, but it's also a great mirror. You can't hide. When you're teaching, there's no hiding. You have people looking at you, and you're talking about the practice, and you can either articulate it from your experience, or you can't, and it's very obvious <laughs> when you can't. And so you get to see the limitations of your practice, which can be both um, um, uh, you know, good material, or you can also feel very um, punished by it in a certain way. So the, 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 the pleasure and pain, right? Now each of you could talk about your own ways that the pleasure of facilitating and the challenges, right? feeling nervous, feeling shy, feeling you know, the thought of getting up on the stage and giving a talk to 20, 30, 50, 100 people, you know, terrifying for some. And then it's praise and blame. This is a very common part of the teaching role. I learned. I used to be a cook and a, and a chef, and one of the re- things I listened, I learned as a cook, is you can't please. You're lucky if you please half of the half of your audience. You know, people have very strong preferences about food and tastes, and and so I was happy if half the room was was you know, contented, and and it's a maybe a little bit like that with teaching, you know. People want more of this. They want more silence. They want more practice. They want less practice. They want more talking. They want more training. They want you know, it's um, you know, it's that that's again to trying to try and to get into the pleasing game is is a, is a setup for suffering. So with teaching, you know, some people will love what you do. They'll think you're the bee's knees. They'll think you walk on water and the wisest thing that ever stepped on the planet. And other people will think you're talking out your ass and you know nothing. You know, you know, it happens when we teach give retreats here in talks and then you notice you the notice board and sometimes we get notes after our talks and sometimes they're love notes and sometimes they're hate notes. And sometimes in the same talk you can get, my, that was the best talk I've ever heard. That was really transformational, thank you. Another that will say, that was the worst talk I've ever heard. I didn't understand what the hell you were on about. Right? We have some preferences about what kind of notes we like. <laughs> you know, and we're we not, you know, not on a... Uh, what's the word um, not ira- not <laughs> not infrequently we'll hear things like you know that practice changed my life, that retreat changed my life, or you're teaching what you said changed my life i don't and i don't take it personally. I just think the practice and the 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 power of mindfulness and the dharma is transformative right The skill with praise and blame is to not take it personally you know we the skill is not to Use it as a tool for inflation. Wow, I really must be the most best, you know, hmm, I changed someone's life. That, I'm pretty special over here. You no, to understand that it's the power of the practice. And I was giving a talk recently in the city um, to, uh, to a teacher training, and uh, a friend of mine, colleague, um, introduced me, and, and he just did this really lavish, over-the-top, I was completely embarrassed, um, uh, flattering um, introduction, um, and um, and maybe that was genuine for him to to, to feel that way. But it, I was I was um, the praise was was actually made me really uncomfortable. Especially being English, you just don't say that. <laughs> you say you know he's all right. You know he's not a bad teacher. You know I mean he's got a few things to say. You know but you know give or take this or that. You know. Um, So the praise right and then to notice how much we reach and and look for and adjust our teaching perhaps to receive more praise or approval or liking or likes Um, Because we're conditioned to we're oriented towards making a lot of meaning out of approval and praise and being liked and That's just very human and natural and we want to be mindful of that so it's not we're not leading with that it's not getting in the way of the teaching it's fine to, act, to acknowledge that we like praise or like appreciation or like positive feedback but not to orient one's teaching around that and then of course the more the higher the pedestal right the 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 deeper the fall and you can be guaranteed if there's praise there's going to be blame right dislike judgment criticism um, and the more public you are and the bigger the role the more you you're likely to uh, be on the uh, end of that uh, attack so um, uh, we don't have this anymore partly for this reason actually um, th- th- at the end of retreats we would you know just like with with your courses you probably have evaluations, student evaluations course evaluations And there's usually something on there about the 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 class and the instruction and the instructor and and things and and I remember every retreat, you know, I would get the get the class the retreat evaluation. Of course, I'd go right down to what they think about the teacher and right to the negative thing that they said, and it would sting, right? Um, Especially if you know one had you know I'd felt like it'd been a beautiful retreat and good teachings. And then there was one person who was like, "Mm -mm." There could be 15 really positive evaluations. Of course, what do we listen to? We listen to the negative critique. And we think that must be the true evaluation. You know, sometimes I've had people in class, you know, come up to me, like in the break, really angry because I'm not doing the class right, I'm not teaching it right, I'm not being true to the tradition, or I'm not doing it in this way or in that way. Right? Blame, blame, blame. You know, the more public you are, like if you you know, writing articles, writing books, writing blogs, more exposed to praise and blame. Particularly blame people feel much more licensed online in personal uh, Forum to vent you just look at someone who posts something on Facebook and then the conversation that happened after that You know can bring out the worst in people's judgments So to be mindful About that and also to be skillful like when I get evaluations I don't read them right after I've taught I put them away for a while just in the same way that when we give talks here and we, we check in at the end, we don't give critical feedback right after the talk, because after you've given a teaching, there's somewhat there's a vulnerability, there's an openness, um, and it can be really painful to be critiqued because it can often feel like an attack. So like being, being mindful about how and when you read that, how you take it in, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. So similar kind of elevation and uh, and the opposite. Um, so I can't say I'm, I can't have any claim to fame, but I did once get asked to do um, uh, some uh, mindfulness videos for British Airways. So British Airways were launching this new A380. It's a big jumbo, very fancy, sort of it was a state-of-the-art design it was much more better air quality it was quieter and and they were just starting a London San Francisco flight so they wanted to uh, launch it from San Francisco with a you know sort of a health conscious um, sort of orientation and they'd been hearing about um, in-flight meditation for helping people with fear and panic and stress and anxiety and so they approached me to do three meditation videos, which I did around around relaxation and uh, simple mindfulness of breath and working with pre-flight anxiety and stuff like that. Um, And uh, it was actually really fun. And if you fly British Airways, you go into the health and wellness section, somewhere (laughs) deeply buried in their database, you'll find uh, meditation with Mark Homer. It's rather hilarious. and then, so fame and disrepute. I got some emails, because the, the PR company that, that did that production really blasted it. It got a lot of um, internet coverage. And I got some really intense hate mail. Like, how dare you pervert the Buddhist teaching? This is downright you know, outrageous and cheap. And it was really, really, some really nasty stuff. It was quite shocking. Um, which I didn't read much of, but you know, it was just like it's like, ooh, you know. Again, you put yourself out. Inflation, deflation. Same with book reviews, you know, both positive and negative, praise and blame. There was a monk in uh, who teaches in um, where does he teach in, Buddha Rakita. Where does Buddha Rakita teach? Thomas, Uganda. Uganda and um he's teaching he has a small meditation center there and you know and uh um a lot of hostility from from people locally and uh he's teaching meditation one day and someone drives by and tries to kill him shoots shoots uh several rounds into the into the temple and he by good fortune and he says by the power of his meta practice he misses the bullets and um this is an intense form of you could say praise and blame and then gain and loss right? again the, the winds of gain and loss so in in, in, in again and in with teaching there's the joy there's the satisfaction there's the um, building up of a community of um, curricula of body of students as you as you grow whatever your mindfulness teaching is your reputation might grow right? and then that can equally Uh, be taken away right? just like we see many things taken away in our lives right Uh, i know people who've been sued um, for um, their teaching for teaching children in schools for instance Uh, a dear friend of mine who built this beautiful uh, retreat center and um, uh, established this great mindfulness community various chain of events and he's not really that welcome at the center anymore so huge gain and loss um, i have a colleague who's who's aging one of our senior dharma teachers who feels discriminated against because of her age she experiences ageism and less invitations to teach so she's experiencing loss uh, as part of that aging process So these are just some ways that we experience these worldly winds, both in our teaching course, they blow through our life, they blow through our meditation. And like with anything, with practice, uh, our practice is to relate to them with wisdom, with kindness, with compassion. Wisdom to see when the inflation gets taken up by the ego, and compassion when there's the crash and and fall. This is a poem from Jennifer Wellwood, called The d- 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 the 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 Darkini Speaks. <coughs> My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could you have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings, but please let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but is only wild and her compassion exquisitely precise. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Give yourselves to it. Stop making passages, stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. So part of a maturing practice is to come into a skillful relationship with the ups and the downs and the ebbs and the flows. So the second characteristic partly I and mean, significantly informed by this truth of change that, that everything within this life and in internally out externally is subject to change transients therefore ultimately unsatisfactory so when the Buddha talked about the in the teaching of the four truths there is unsatisfactoriness there is dukkha There are things that are hard to bear. And he's pointing to this this element of our experience. That because of change, there's unreliability, there's uncertainty, there's undependability. You can't ultimately depend on anything or anyone because everything is subject to the same law of change. Whatever we're going to lose, we will lose, including everything, including our life and everything that we know. So, um, how does this play out in our teaching? The truth of unsatisfactoriness. Maybe you've already experienced some elements of unsatisfactoriness in teaching, even though you're, you're facilitating or training to teach. So, just talking about dharma today, for instance, as a, as, a, as, a, as a dharma teacher for myself, there's uncertainty about livelihood, uncertainty about making money, certainly uncertainty about... Retirement. I don't. None of my colleagues have retired. <laughs> partly because they love teaching, and partly because they probably can't afford to retire. The uncertainty of teaching in 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 various sectors. So, I've, as I said, I've done a lot of work in businesses in in the corporate world, and it's very uncertain. You know, for those of you who are consultants and, and do that work, you know that it takes a long time to engage a corporate client. And I've worked with, you know, some significant companies, major manufacturing companies, car ma- car manufacturers and, and global tech companies and pharmaceutical companies. And sometimes there'll be a, a, you know, one to two year engagement of, yes, we want you to bring mindfulness. Yes, we're going to roll it out to our, to our, to our executive team, and then we're going to roll it out nationally, and then we'll do an international plan, and then we'll yada yada yada. And proposals are sent, and you know, statements of work, and this and that, and then radio silence. And you wonder, did I say something? Did they die? <laughs> or is this just run of the mill corporate culture? Uh, yes, that is the case. There's a reorg. There's a budget freeze, there's a new hire, and there's a horizontal shift in the organization, boom. Training's out, new CEO in, end of story. Uncertainty. There's a samsaric quality to teaching. You can teach the most fabulous course, the most brilliant class, the most wonderful training, and then it ends, and then you gotta do it all over again. the endless round of existence so there are different levels to this this teaching on dukkha and then satisfactions the, the, the dukkha of the body which i've already mentioned the suffering of the body teaching takes its toll on the body it's tiring it can be exhausting at times we can take on too much feel frazzled there's what's called Sankara Dukkha, the condition Dukkha, that things are ultimately out of our control. So we can set up the perfect curriculum, assemble the greatest team, and have all the PowerPoints and bells and whistles that we have, and then you know, don't know who's going to come in the class. And you don't know quite how articulate you're going to be that day. And so there's a certain unreliability to it, which makes it, to me, very interesting and juicy and fun, but also makes it a little scary and uncertain. Right? which can be unsatisfying and, and troubling. Then there's the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, or the pain of the role itself. Right? The pain of being projected onto. Right? But those of you who've been projected onto a lot, where people put you on a pedestal and elevate you into, while well, you're the mindfulness teacher, so you must be mindful all the time. You must be really mindful. With, you must be such a mindful parent and and it must be nice not to get angry anymore, and to be really kind when you're in traffic. And you know, people put all these trips on you, right? <coughs> and and you know, to the ego that might say, "Yeah, I'm pretty good at this. Yeah, I've got this licked and hasn't got this down." But to be related to through projection is actually very painful because people aren't relating to you as a person; they're relating to to an idea of who they think you are or who they would who they would like you to be, right? And if that happens a lot, if you teach a lot, and that's your main role of contact with people, that can be a little alienating. That's why it's really good to have peers. And In this tradition, we really highly value team teaching because it keeps you real. Like, you know, students can be all sort of, you know, googly-eyed and inflating, and your colleagues are going, yeah, it was all right. (laughs) Yeah, you're not bad, you know. And then there's the, the difficult students. Anybody got the one or two difficult students? The ones that follow you around from class to class, to course to course, who are sitting in the back and like, I don't think, I heard some research that from different, and you know, and you said last week that, you know, and... You know, or the, or the person who likes to take up a lot of time and, and need to share everything about themselves, or the, or the student who likes to give other people feedback and advice about what they should be doing, or um, the ones who adore you and fall in love with you and wait early beginning the class with an apple and, you know. Um, or the ones who come up at the end of class and just, Lord, tons of praise and just, are just really longing for attention from you, and it makes you feel really uncomfortable.
1: Right?
0: Right? Or just someone is genuinely appreciative and grateful, and it's even hard to take that, because it, 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 it jars with your sense of identity. Yeah? It does jars with how you see yourself or how your critic sees you or maybe you just have you know a lot of stress and anxiety about performance about being in a public role you know about getting it right about delivering the material well or not letting your teachers down or being congruent with the tradition and there's a lot of there's a lot of things to juggle I mean teaching is a very complex role and there's a lot to manage and that can be quite stressful And then, of course, there's the critic, you know, who's always very clear about how you're not doing it right, how you could have done it better. It will remember you could have delivered an impeccable talk, except one word you screwed up. And you'll be lying awake at night, like, oh shit, why did I say that word? The perfectionist mind. Or oh, there's another quality of dukkha which is not quite right, right? So we're having the perfect meditation, and it's very delicious and calm, but there's a little fly on the window over there that's just a minuscule bit irritating. Right? That's the not quite right, and that's just the nature of human experience. There's always something, right? That's the same with teaching. I had a very significant aha when... You know, I was training to teach and I'd study and I'd been practicing for a long time and I was looking forward to the time when you know my teaching was happening and I had enough work and uh, enough money to pay the rent and was enjoying it and some stability. And at some point I sort of got there to that point of where I was hoping to get and then I was there and I was like the, the made it, oh, I've now I've made it, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of established in the teaching role and it was like, oh, And is this it? Is this what I was wanting to be? Is this what I was aspiring for? Because you know, it's okay, it's lovely, but it's not it. Right? Nothing is it. Right? Because of this quality of dukkha, the the inherent unsatisfactoriness. Then there's the dukkha of team teaching. My wonderful peers and friends and beloveds, right? That we love. it's, It's it's delight. It's playful. It's joyful. It's fun. It can be downright infuriating. You can there can be conflict. There can be dis- disagreements. There can be um, uh, power clashes. There can be competition. There can be inflation, deflation. There can be all kinds of things, subtle or gross. Right? Um, generally, lovely to team teach. Very supportive. You get a variety of voices, variety of perspectives. You get gender balance. You get you get racial diversity balances. Although we don't have that on this team, unfortunately. We tried to, but we we, we didn't succeed. Uh, one of our teachers canceled at the last minute. So there's there's a, there's wonderful things with team teaching, and it's it's challenging. And I love this team immensely. <laughs> 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 I'm not talking about them. These these people are great. <laughs> <laughs> so then there's the so there's the Duke. the Nietzsche. The change. There's there's insatisfactionness. And then the third characteristic, um, sometimes more subtle, but in teaching not so subtle. Um, the teaching around self, selfing and not-self, where we see the process of identity, of, of I, of me, of the ego, of becoming someone or projecting someone or projecting an identity or wanting to be seen in a certain way, wanting to be liked, thinking that you're somebody, all of that stuff around me and myself and my identity and how I'm perceived, right? What I post on Facebook, you know, the picture of me teaching somewhere, you know. Right? We live in a world of building up our identity through social media. It's a very odd time to be living from a from a Buddhist perspective, I think. So it's important again to see how this arises, right? Mindfulness in it is it, it the 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 mindfulness reveals right, the clarity, understanding about the selfing process. So and 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 the selfing process reveals itself in different ways. One way it reveals itself is through inflation. Sometimes we feel like we're the bee's knees. We got this stuff down, I know how to do it, I'm gonna teach it and I've taught it well and aren't I the greatest.
1: Right?
0: Some of you will Lean more to that side of the spectrum. Okay? I have a delightful friend and colleague who we team teach together, and he falls into the inflation spectrum, and I fall into the deflation spectrum. That's kind of we kind of tag team, and so and so and, and hearing from him, it's it's to me it's hilarious because I have a different perspective from his from his sense of inflation as part of his sort of tendency. Um, that he doesn't take too seriously, but it's just, it's just the, n- the leaning of the personality, he's like, yeah, I can do this, and actually I can do it better than anybody here. Yeah, and I should do it, you know, in regard to teaching, right? Whereas if I'm in the deflation perspective and I'm identified with that, it's like, well, I'm probably not the best person to do this, and you'd probably do it better, and, you know, I could do it, but you know, it's going to be okay, but, yeah. You know. And so it's, it's really interesting to, we, when we play with that, we play with that dance in our, in our teaching, which is really fun. So the key, you know, mindfulness supports seeing, but it also supports disengaging or disidentifying, right? So we can see these impersonal patterns of inflation or deflation and not take them so seriously. It's just we see the selfing process happen. Right? So, if you notice at times you're feeling inflated and like, you know, I'm just the best mindfulness teacher that ever lived here, you know, can you see that with some humor? Can you see that with some awareness? Like, oh, look at me, look how good I am. Mm-hmm. When you collapse, can you see that also with the same awareness? Like, oh, look at that, you're feeling really deficient, small, lesser than, not enough. That requires usually more compassion. There's there's more pain, there's more sting in the deflation. Of course, both inflation and deflation are both insecure because they're always changing. And the deflation is fueled by the critic, fueled by the self judgments fueled by a pattern of um, low self-worth. Another way that the, the, the selfing process happens, particularly in teen teaching, but not just in teen teaching, is we get into comparing. We get into comparing our talks and our guided meditations, and maybe you're listening to your friends or your colleagues' guided meditation, and they do it really well, and you're, and you're thinking, I wish they wouldn't do it quite as good. <laughs> you know, we get into, into, we get into envy rather than celebrating. I remember f- when I first started teaching with my teachers, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sean Salzberg, and feeling tremendously intimidated and um, and and deflated and small and um, nervous. You know and of course, they're very encouraging and supportive and loving, um, and you know I may have given a terrible talk, and they're still you know, supportive and loving and. I remember there's the a great Tibetan teacher Dilgo Khenpo Rinpoche, who was one of the great antique masters who passed probably I don't know five or ten years ago. Um, was very both a huge person, but also a huge mind and capacity as a teacher. He was really one of the great teachers from the last century, and and he uh, a Tibetan teacher and and uh, he said when he started teaching, he said. You know, I look at my teachers and I think, who am I to teach? I'm 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 nothing compared to my teachers. And we're looking at him thinking, (laughs) this is like a master, you know, master of masters. So So with all of this inflation, deflation, grandiosity, whatever point of reference, comparison, story you tell about yourself. Can you see it with awareness? Can you hold it with kindness, right? The, the selfing process around teaching is often very painful. The judging, the comparing, inflating, deflating. Can we be kind with ourselves with that process? It's not like we're choosing to be that way. It's just part of our egoic conditioning. And so it's important as a teacher to learn how to get out of your own way, right? To trust in your practice, to trust particularly in the teaching. For me, I trust in the Dharma that it doesn't matter whether I think my talk is good or bad or funny or entertaining or interesting. If I feel like I'm delivering the teaching, I can trust in the validity of the teaching. If you're delivering the practice, you can trust in the integrity of the practice and of course we do our work to refine and be a be a, a, an optimum vehicle for that delivery but it's not about us and we really have to remember that it's not about us to not take it personally i had this advice from a dear friend of mine when i first started teaching and she said um, she said when she teaches she she doesn't take responsibility for what happens to her students she shows up she studies she prepares she teaches in the best way that she can what happens out there is not your business. You've done your work, you've of the teaching, you've transmitted and and, and all of that. How it's received, how it's taken, how it's metabolized, how it's understood, how it's implemented, that is not up to you. You let go, you do your work and you let go. The rest is not up to you, she said. So you give all you can, you do all you can, you study, you prepare, you practice, you teach and you let go. And so, despite all these characteristics, and I maybe I'm like a bit of a downer at the end of the retreat. Here we're doing a teaching and practice, and they're wonderful, and we can go out and share these great practices. You know, There's all dukkha and pain and, <laughs> and changing and loss and deflation, <laughs> right? But I'm just painting, you know, some real some reality to the picture. It's both beautiful and challenging. It's like life, right? But you know. For many of us, and for many of you, um, and I love this idea of servant teacher, that there's something much bigger happening in this work. It's not about us. It's not about our egoic machinations. It's something much more profound. And that becomes ultimately the motivation for our practice and our teaching. We care because we love the practice, and we care because we've seen the transformation in our own life, and we see what capacity it can give people. And that's what becomes important. All the rest of the, the egoic stuff is less important. So we get clear about our motivation. It's coming from love. It's coming from love of practice, love of freedom, love of human possibility. It comes out of passion, for what we've seen as possible in our own lives and the lives of others. And we do our work and we let go. And we do our work because we see the immense suffering in the world. We see the suffering that's caused by lack of mindfulness, by lack of compassion by greed, by hatred, by delusion, by racism, by fear, by all the ways that humans add suffering to themselves and to each other. And we see how mindfulness and compassion can be these profound vehicles for, for transformation. And that's why we teach. And whether it's good or bad or fun or high or low, that's secondary to the fact that you want to teach because you want these teachings to disseminate as widely as possible because because you know they can bring about freedom and peace and well-being and At the end of the day and this is certainly true for me that the relieving of suffering in the world is the only thing that matters ultimately Many many other beautiful things that happen, but for me, this is the most important thing How do we relieve as much suffering as possible through our own practice and our lives and our energy in this, in this life. So I'm going to close with this reading from George Bernard Shaw called Splendid Torch where he says, this is the true joy in life, the being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being a force of nature Instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world, world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community and as long as I live it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die. For the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch for which I've got hold of for the moment and they want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. So let's sit for a moment. And just reflecting for a moment on your intention for your work, your intention for your practice, and particularly your intention for your wishing and your sharing of mindfulness practice. What is the deepest wish you have for your work for your students, for their potential. And may we live our lives and dedicate our practice and our teaching for that intention, for that aspiration to ultimately relieve suffering and bring wisdom, compassion, and freedom into the world. Thank you for your